0: You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals, brought to you by TheCourtLeader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The events that have transpired since last February of this year leaves one almost without words a pandemic the likes of which this country has not seen since the 1918 Spanish flu, unemployment numbers that now rival the 1929 Great Depression, and now protests and riots in over two dozen cities sparked by the killing of an unarmed African-American man in Minneapolis. This episode was to be focused on virtual hearings, and we will still discuss this topic, but I thought it important to acknowledge the events of this last week. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leader's Advantage podcast series. Today we have with us Chris Gaddis, Court Administrator for the Pierce County Superior Court in Tacoma, Washington. Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator for the Circuit Court in Lane County, Oregon. Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator for the Seventh Judicial Circuit in Daytona Beach, Florida. Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer for the Superior Court in San Diego, California. And Rick Pierce, with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Thanks to all of you for joining today's podcast. As an episode note, I was intending to lead off by asking Zanelle Brown about events in Detroit, but Zanelle was called away just as the recording started because protesters were marching toward her courthouse. About halfway through the recording, Chris Gaddis was also called away because protesters were approaching his courthouse in Tacoma. With that said, let me ask Mike Rowdy, How have events of the last week affected you, and how has your court responded?
1: We uh, are closed today, today being Monday, the 1st of June, based on some protests that we had uh, over the weekend, and on Sunday here in downtown San Diego, after uh, 10 o'clock in the evening, between 10 and midnight or so, we had numerous uh, outbreaks, and we had windows broken, we had graffiti around the courthouse. And so on the advice of uh, the sheriff's department who provides our security and the fact that they've taken all of the deputies for frontline duty, we are, in fact, closed today, hoping to reopen again tomorrow. And what's frustrating about that for us is we had just reopened last Tuesday and we were just getting back on our feet uh, due to the coronavirus. And then we something like this hit. So it's been a bit disheartening here.
0: Rick, how about in Pennsylvania?
1: In three of our cities
2: over the weekend, we had uh, some protests that ended up having some uh, turns to violence, particularly Philadelphia. But I think moving forward regarding a question regarding the court's response, I can't say specifically if we had any of our courts uh, attacked. But I do think that one thing we be cognizant of that the, the courts can serve as a symbolic target down the road, I think that the courts could serve, uh, the physical structures could be a flashpoint for demonstrations throughout the life of this justice case that's being brought in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with the police officer that has been charged with third-degree murder. So that is something that the courts should be aware of, that this could take place all across the country.
0: Now let's turn to virtual hearings. Now for several of you, Your courts are using Zoom, either exclusively or at least as one of the available platforms. Let me start with a question about bandwidth. Now, for me, it shows up as buffering when the screen freezes or if a party gets dropped off. Chris, does your court in Tacoma have a problem with buffering or drop calls?
3: With uh, the bandwidth question, that was one of the first things we asked our big county IT staff. So, Obviously, Superior Court has RIT staff, but big county, when when we're looking at all three to 4,000 employees with Pierce County, what does that look like? And did, whether it was Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Skype for Business, whatever it was, did they have in the county the bandwidth to support up to 22 judicial departments and nine commissioners to handle their dockets? And the response back from them was whatever system that the county agreed on, would have to have that requirement. So ultimately, for any proceeding, it was agreed that Zoom would would be the, the platform that we used. And so uh, we got assurances that the bandwidth problem wasn't an issue. As far as buffering or drop calls, that's not something that we've seen to a great extent. I think if you watch our proceedings online through our website, there are times when people buffer. Um, I, I don't know if that's a result of the the participant, wherever they're at and their connection, that's an issue. But our judges have been very patient and worked with everybody that's involved. I don't know if there's had been an instance where somebody has had to not participate via video and had to use the call-in feature of Zoom, but I haven't received any complaints from our judges or commissioners about the, the uh, concerns of buffering or drop calls.
0: Mark. How many virtual hearings do you have a week in the Seventh Circuit? Now, on a previous episode, you mentioned having bandwidth concerns. Does your court still have a problem with buffering and drop calls?
4: I can't give you a specific number in terms of the numbers of hearings we're doing, other than to say a lot. Um, We have 43 judges in in our circuit, plus a number of magistrates and hearing officers, and they are all doing hearings remotely using Zoom. As regards to the bandwidth, we were fortunate that we were able to add some bandwidth, so we have not experienced any of the buffering or drop calls that you referenced here um, on our end, but as Chris mentioned, uh, we have had some issues, because it does depend on all the participants having sufficient uh, bandwidth in order to participate. So we have had relatively few incidents of folks being dropped, but I think Those are attributed to lack of bandwidth on their end.
0: Liz, on a previous episode, you mentioned public access to virtual hearings in Oregon. What is the situation with public access in your state?
5: Remote proceedings do provide a particular challenge with regards to giving the public access to the courtroom and to the proceeding that's going on. But we've employed a bunch of different strategies in Oregon to overcome that. And, of course, here in Lane County, we've been doing most of our proceedings remotely, either through uh, video conferencing or through telephonic conferencing. So there's three different strategies, basically, that are being used to ensure that our courthouse remains open to the public. The first one is the sort of the easiest, which is when we're doing audio conferencing and sometimes uh, video conferencing sessions as well, the courtroom remains open to the public so that the public can attend the court and observe the proceedings that are happening via telephone. Then the video conferencing, we've got a couple of different strategies for that as well. WebEx, in particular, offers a live streaming option that the OJD is using to live stream some of the sessions that are going on. And, of course, if uh, that's not an option based on the the technology that you're using, then the courtroom is open, and we have set up video so that the anybody can observe the video conference as it's going on. And being in the courtroom, of course, you have to be social distance. So many of our courtrooms are very small. So in some instances, and particularly in the jury trial that we anticipate will start tomorrow, the public will access via an open courtroom that has closed uh, circuit uh, transmission from the courtroom where the trial is actually proceeding. So just any way that we can do it for the particular proceeding and the technology that's available is what we're doing.
0: Chris, describe how your court in Tacoma uses YouTube for public access.
3: So we use our website uh, to broadcast our Zoom proceedings through YouTube. There's a link on the main page of our website. It takes you to an intermediate page, which asks if you that if you wish to record this, that you must follow the general rule. Uh, 16 and requests permission from the judicial officer. And then once you agree not to record, it takes you to the page that allows you to view our remote proceedings. What we have started this morning, it, we resumed a, a murder trial. And so probably like everyone's courthouse, all of most of our courtrooms are too small. So we have to have overflow of a broadcast. We actually have three courtrooms tied up with this trial this morning. We have one for jury breaks and deliberation, one where the actual trial is going on with our jurors seated in the gallery, and then we have the the broadcast room in another courtroom where we have opened it up for non-court participants to observe. For example, in the courtroom, we can have the 12 jurors seated and only have room for two other members of the public to observe so that we felt we needed to open up the, the second room so that people could observe the trial. If they didn't have access to cell phone or video capabilities through a laptop.
0: Mike, how does San Diego use public access for virtual hearings?
1: At this point, our virtual hearings have been uh, criminal arraignments and preliminary hearings. We went live with YouTube audio streaming only. We're not doing the video streaming, but audio streaming last week. So far, we haven't had any problems with that. And our intention will be, as we move forward, to make the audio proceedings available. Much like in in Tacoma, you can go to the website, click on the courtroom where the hearings are being held, and it takes you directly into an audio feed. So we figured that was the best way to provide public access, given the fact that we're not permitting the public largely inside of our courthouses at this point.
0: Now, I've heard reports of some virtual meetings open to the public getting porn bombed. So security is an important issue. Rick, Pennsylvania courts use WebEx, Zoom, Skype, BlueJeans meetings, and even FaceTime. So you have a lot of comparative knowledge. So in your mind, what's the story on security within each of these different platforms?
2: I think my response is different now than when it was two or three months ago when you asked me this question. Because at the AOC, we have a contract with Cisco, so we use WebEx. We have a high degree of confidence in its security. But we also use Zoom, which has increased its security significantly, and many of our courses, you just noted, use other applications, including some of those not mentioned, such as Microsoft Teams, GoToMeeting, Scopia, LifeSize, Windstream. Most of these platforms have adapted to the need for end-to-end encryption. So in some respects, security can also fall to the end user or host of the court proceeding. So in other words, the end user really has to be up to speed on who they're going to let into the proceeding. So familiarity and comfort level, I think, do really play a role in how secure your court proceeding is. You know, Zoom was lagging in security when the pandemic began, but not now some of them may view them as maybe even on the leading edge of security. Uh, administrators must ask, I think, before they purchase a license, how the proceeding is protected. You know, is it end-to-end encryption? Who or what creates the record? And, and then where is the record stored? Is it, on, is it in the cloud? Or is it on a server? And what costs are involved in purchasing a, an API, which is an application program interface? And this is really important, uh, especially when you're dealing with multiple platforms, because that API provides that connectivity to other platforms and software.
0: Which do you think is the easiest for judges and litigants to use?
2: Familiarity still determines the ease of use, I think. Uh, With that said, each judge seems to have their own preference. I would say the majority of the judges and probably even more the court users, they prefer Zoom. And I think that's the reason why it's not to say that the others are deficient. But uh, Zoom's the largest name in the business, and more people are familiar with that platform on a personal level, maybe because they've had their own Zoom family get-togethers. But once Zoom addressed its security drawbacks at the outset of this pandemic, I think more officials found it satisfactory and easy to use. But that, like I said, that does not uh, you know, disparage any of the other platforms that are out there that we have been using, because each court has said to me that they're comfortable with the
0: platform that they have chosen. Mike, San Diego uses Microsoft Teams, Zoom, and Skype. What's your comparative assessment of security for the different platforms?
1: Well, I would echo uh, Rick's comments because I think when starting out, we had some real concerns with Zoom. Uh, Skype is is rarely used here anymore. I think we've vocally focused on Teams, which is used by our justice partner agencies. And so that kind of led us down to that path. And then Zoom has been in use for some time in a limited basis for certain types of evidentiary hearings where the party might be outside of San Diego County. Having said that, uh, at this point, we're very comfortable with the security of either Teams or Zoom, which are the two platforms we're focused in on. We've really adopted Teams and have been working to train our judges and staff, believing that by sticking with one product, we have a better chance of getting good training and good support in place as we make the transition to case types beyond criminal.
0: How do you compare Microsoft Teams to Zoom in terms of ease of use?
1: Well, and again, the same comment. I think familiarity breeds ease of, ease of use. What we see as we get our judges and staff trained is that they adapt very quickly to Teams, even if they've used Zoom. There's some common similarities there that they make that transition much easier. What we've also been doing internally are having numerous meetings with judges and and others using Teams and purposefully uh, setting them up to use the product so that as they transition into the courtroom, they're much more familiar with the product and the controls and are able to use that very easily.
0: Liz, Eugene uses WebEx, Microsoft Teams, and GoToMeeting. How would you compare their ease of use? Well,
5: I'd have to really echo what Rick and Mike just said, that ease of use has a lot to do with the perception of the users. And I would say of those products, probably Teams and GoToMating have an easier ease of entry into use, if that makes sense. It doesn't mean that it's easier to use, that they're easier to use. It just means that they're maybe a little easier to enter into and probably Zoom as well. Although I haven't tried that one, but it could go also that the functionality and what we've discovered is that the functionality of those are limited a little bit. And so OJB has focused in on WebEx and the licensing through Cisco for WebEx for that reason. So it's almost, as others have said, a really a degree of familiarity and training that makes the use possible as opposed to the actual ease of use of the, the product itself once you're entered into it and understand some basic controls and how they work. We continue to use all three products for different reasons. Teams we use mostly for teleconference meetings that are in excess of our internal voice systems capacity to hold teleconference hearings. So um, we're using it for overflow teleconference hearings, and then WebEx and GoToMeeting are used for video conferencing.
0: Rick, how do courts in Pennsylvania make the record in virtual hearings?
2: That's a question that I think varies uh, with each platform that's being used and what each uh, judicial district's choosing to do. Some are actually having their court reporter participating virtually, but they're actually as a part- active participant of that hearing. And so they'll keep it and then they'll place it on their local area network and store the record that way. The, in fact, that's what a majority of them that actually have a court reporter, that's what they've been doing for those courts that are of record in Pennsylvania. The other means is obviously of doing a audio record or a video recording in some jurisdictions they are doing video recordings. And there it becomes a, an issue of whether they're storing it on the server that's owned by the, that judicial district by that county court, or is it a server, a third party server? And that does become a little bit of an issue there because the record is always a proprietary to the court and uh, should, that does not really belong on a third party server. So those courts that are using court reporters, it's, it's easy enough to to take care of because they all have the record. Uh, it's one it's it's an audio recording or even a video recording that's not done by with in addition to by a court employee like a court reporter.
0: And it becomes a a different story. Mark, how does your court make the record in virtual hearings? We we use a variety of methods. In
4: some instances, uh, as was mentioned earlier, we use Zoom primarily. So it has a recording feature within it to make the record. As Rick mentioned, sometimes a court reporter joins the meeting like anybody else would and creates the record that way. Sometimes we also do the hearings within a courtroom that is equipped with the digital recording technology that we own, and it's recorded that way. So we make the record in all of those
0: fashions. On a previous episode, it was commented that private sidebars between attorneys and clients was an issue with virtual hearings. Mark, has the issue of private sidebars between attorneys and clients in virtual hearings been solved in the Seventh Circuit?
4: Well, those of the listeners who are familiar with Zoom will know that there is a feature within it that you can create these meeting rooms and send people to the meeting rooms. And and that's the the vehicle that we're using for these sidebars. Um, How private or how confidential they are uh, remains to be seen,
0: but that's what we're using here. Liz, what's the situation in Eugene regarding sidebars in virtual hearings?
4: Initially,
5: that was a big challenge in understanding how the controls on the video conferencing systems worked in particular, but that has been worked out, and our court has figured out how to do that with both GoToMeeting and with WebEx. So, it's just a matter of learning and understanding the technology that we're dealing with and how the controls work, and then part of it is also in familiarizing your users. So, for example... The defense attorneys have to know how to get back in the meeting and and those kind of things. So after a while, it's become a bit easier to
0: manage. One of the big questions about virtual hearings remains cultural, so I'm going to ask it around the edges. Do you think there's a natural bias in favor of someone who physically shows up in a courtroom over someone who appears by way of a webcam? And if so, is that bias so profound that it could eventually kill virtual hearings? Mark?
4: If if I could, could I take just a couple of minutes and refer the listeners to uh, a, a couple of sources? I remember, gosh, it must be 10 years ago or so, there was an article in a publication called The Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. And the, the authors of that examined the impact of video conference hearings on bail decisions in Chicago. And what the researchers found then was that defendants were disadvantaged by having their bail proceedings conducted by video. And there's a quote within that that says, technology offers great promise, but procedural justice is the currency of a fair and legitimate court system. And the other thing I'd just like to reference is our colleague, Norm Myers, in the court leader posted something back in uh, March, right around the beginning of the pandemic. And the blog post is written by Professor Ann Wallace, in which she talked about video conferencing during the pandemic. And uh, just at the end of that, says uh, video conferencing technology plays an important role in delivering justice in many court systems today. But concludes, it shouldn't be regarded as a panacea and courts need to carefully weigh some of its potential disadvantages in deciding whether other options might produce better if somewhat delayed outcomes. So I think the jury is still out as to whether or not, you know, going forward, if we're going to see as many remote proceedings as is currently being done.
0: Liz, what's your opinion?
5: I I think it's a really interesting question, and one that, like Mark said, The jury is still out on it. Um, We don't know the answer to that. And we know there are situations where it can provide access to courts that we can't otherwise do well. I think I've mentioned before, our county is very large, about 4,700 square miles. And we have small cities at every outer edge of our judicial district. And so providing service from our sort of centrally located county seat is a real challenge and so I think there will be opportunities in the future to provide more video and remote style hearings. But like Mark said, it's about procedural justice and it's about how you do that. And in conversations with judges, at least briefly, I know there's a strong inclination here in Lane County to ensure that everyone in a proceeding has the same access. So The notion of allowing one person to appear in person and another person to appear via video conferencing is a really an anathema. It isn't going to happen here. Our judges feel strongly that that would actually not be a fair proceeding, at least not give the appearance of it. So I think that there's still a lot to work through. But one thing that we've talked about before is this situation has opened up doorways to conversations about the appropriate use of virtual hearings that may not have been open before, so we'll see what happens with that.
0: Mike, what are your thoughts?
1: I think the jury's still out because I don't think we've yet fully utilized, you know, remote appearances to their full extent, and by that I mean we've been doing them in non-jury proceedings, pre-trial proceedings, and in some cases for sentencing and post-judgment proceedings. And I I think in those areas, the judges are more comfortable with the technology and with the degree of access that's provided. Where it really becomes an issue, and I'm not sure we're going to overcome that, is when you start to talk about the actual jury trial process. I know we've heard about uh, virtual trials and virtual juries and some of those things. That may be a bridge too far for many of our people. I would also say that we see our younger uh, judges and employees embrace the technology more than some of our veterans. And so I think that dynamic will play itself out. But I think at the end of the day, if we restore some normalcy to the idea that we can have people together again and we can open up the buildings, that you'll see us backslide a bit and go back to the in-person hearing model because that seems to be the one that people are most comfortable with. Rick, what's your assessment?
2: I would echo what, uh, what everyone else has said to this point. I think most human beings are very resistant to change. There's that old adage that uh, and if you're going to change a habit, let's say just to the arm that you wear your wristband or your watch on, your wristwatch, you have to put on the other hand for three solid weeks in order for a change to, to sink in. And I would agree with what Mike just said. I, don't, I think we have done that to an extent with some proceedings you know, we've had in Pennsylvania, we've been using proceedings where with an incarcerated uh, defendant for some criminal proceedings for, for quite some time, for several years, actually. So I do think that there's familiarity with that. There's more familiarity with the video platforms that are available and everything that comes with that. But as I said regarding change, I think we're very resistant to it. Some people actually fear it. I think it's really at the root of the resistance to move forward with uh, these virtual hearings. And I think we all understand and appreciate greatly the constitutional right to due process. And to answer your question, is that they're perceived a natural bias. I don't know if it's bias, but certainly a preference probably for in-person over a virtual representation. I do think there's room for both. And hopefully we'll be willing to accept and trust the technology. That's only That trust is only going to come when we have more familiarity, a greater comfort level with that technology, and we'll get that when there's security that's built into
4: that technology as well. If I could just interrupt a minute, you know, I think there's a social science aspect to this last question that, that I think is going to play out over some period of time. So like the others have said, we don't know a lot of the answers yet, but as research will undoubtedly be done. In the future, hopefully some of these questions will be answered.
0: My thanks to Liz, Mike, Chris, Mark, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are dealing with some of the practical aspects of virtual hearings, as well as dealing with the events of this last week. My thanks also to you court professionals out there listening, and despite everything that's going on, continuing to keep the courts operating. Thank you. For listeners who are interested, we've created links to the two pieces Mark Weinberg mentioned in today's episode. Efficiency and cost: the impact of video-conferenced hearings on bail decisions. It's from the summer 2010 issue of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. And Courts and Coronavirus: Is video conferencing a solution? Norman Myers, March 16, 2020 posting on the Court Leader website, and which features Professor Ann Wallace's blog post. Listeners can access both pieces on the NACOM Podcast landing page. Join us next week, Thursday, June 11th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at cla podcast. that's all one word, at nacomnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage Podcast Series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is CLA Podcast, that's all one word, at nacomnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, The Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.